You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. This is the Land and Legacy Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. And we are here maybe enjoying the last ever podcast. We we say that with all jokes <laughs> aside. Um, last week, we we did a, a pretty good podcast. Had a lot of great feedback. Um, Honestly, a lot, a lot of feedback. And it was awesome. Yeah, a, a lot of feedback and a lot of uh, open opened minds. Um, and, but it was kind of a little bit on the edge of, 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 uh, being a little risky, you know, we could know we just covered some topics that often get debated or, or some of them not even talked about. Yeah. And you know, we're just sharing some information, keeping it real. I think is what yeah. they say. And we, uh, brother, we're, we were kind of like, okay, let's, let's kind of continue that direction. We kind of cracked the egg. Let's, let's pour out the contents now and um as we and we're not only pouring but we're gonna scramble yeah we're scrambling this egg (laughs) uh because um we're covering something that is often one of the most debated topics with our consulting with our friends with our family not necessarily with our family because they're all on board with us but um this is a debated topic, and it's one of those that that it depends on the region you're from. We totally get it, and Absolutely. we totally get the argument. We don't like to. Matt and I talked about this today. We actually had a consulting trip. It's Saturday night. Uh, we consulted today on the way back. We're like, we don't we don't ever want to find ourselves in the situation to where we make a statement stone car stone cold. This is the way it is. We want to kind of always be open-minded. And because sometimes what the way we conduct our management and the way we conduct our consulting business is trying to model after the way that we feel it was native, natural, the way God intended it to be, um, which kind of doesn't go along with today's world um, sometimes. We just look across, we just see how much change there's been in, in you know the last 200 300 years across the country mm-hmm. so oftentimes we're sharing knowledge of sites that looked completely different in the way they do now we we kind of we i mean we talk a lot about history historical evidence of, of the way things were pre-settlement um and and that's the way we try to going back on last week's podcast we talked about how many buffalo and elk and now whitetails and everything and how efficient that landscape and habitat was and that's all we're trying to do a lot in, with our with our management yeah real quick i guess the reason behind that is is because it you know if everything was untouched that's what that area that landscape is best suited for yeah like if we if we're going to manage it let's manage it and we're not going to you know just because let's say a lot of it is a, is a glade or a lot of it is supposed to be a woodland we're not going to have the other types or or put them into that property so just that property is only woodland no that's not what we're saying but we're saying that hey you know this area this terrain this slope whatever it may be in Illinois should be 
a woodland type setting. Let's manage for that because that's what it should be. And nature is going to work best in that way. Now, before you click that off, we're not saying you're going to have to convince your dad who has a hundred acre soybean field that it needs to go back to tall prairie. (laughs) We understand that. But a lot of times the timber is where we do most of our managing um, and hunting, but yet we neglect it and let it just do its thing, we call it, or, oh, that timber's just maturing, but we don't manage it, and that's where we get into trouble. And so today's podcast is something that is almost scary to go to dan we sure do appreciate the time here on the <laughs> yeah. sportsman's nation we, may be, we might be off here after today <laughs> uh, but but if not next week's podcast is going to be all over the debate fixed blades or <laughs> mechanicals yeah and then the week after that's going to be whether you should drive a ford or chevy that's kind of the direction we're going with today's on the debate of eastern red cedars and thermal cover and best bedding landscapes i guess or best bedding for white-tailed deer the habitat and oh the the can of worm worms is open i can smell it and i can just hear everyone stirring and turning up the radio cranking it and just saying all right boys i'm ready and i hope that you are ready because i i I hope everyone listening kind of takes this and says okay i'm going to listen to this with an open mind to say okay i know what i've experienced and I know what I've seen, and I know what I've heard and what I've read, but let's just see what this source says. Let's just go listen to it and see where it takes us. Hear us and, out. And know, and know again that every region across the Whitetails Range is completely different. So thermal cover in the north is going to look different from what cover in the Midwest or Mid-Atlantic should be because those ecosystems and habitats are different and the temperatures are completely different. So Mm. what Mm, we're mm. saying is there's not one clear cut answer to this. And this is why, I mean, you don't have to be a history. This is probably why it gets debated Uh, so much. Yeah, for sure. Um, But this isn't a, uh, this is why we encourage you to be a history nerd. Um, mm-hmm. You don't. You probably won't. I mean, hopefully you get to where as nerdy as as I get and Matt gets about this. But I really enjoy reading things about the native habitats pre-settlement, and I really, I, I just, I, I, I love it. And I, it's like a constant thing that I'm doing. And and but I can't do it over every landscape. Um, and I can't. And so I encourage every one of you to say, okay, well, I live in the. I live in the thumb of Michigan, and I want to know what was here before we settled this and stopped managing, if you will, and or stopped or or interrupted nature running its course. Yeah, and so that's where it's up to you to grab that torch and start researching and find out. And that's what we did, and 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 continue to do. And it's really amazing once you learn kind of what was here, and then you look. I think Aldo Leopold had the quote, something along the lines of the more you know about um, natural ecosystems, the more it hurts to drive through the country today or something like that. Um, Here's a paraphrase. That was very much a paraphrase. (laughs) It's something along those lines. And, and I'm, I'm in the same boat. And today, as we prepare driving home for this podcast, talking about cedar trees 
and the basically the debate that's going to happen when this podcast gets released and all Dropped. the hate mail we'll probably get. Um, it was kind of just disturbing to drive down the road and look at all the cedar trees and say, well, I guess that's what we're managing for here in the Ozarks because that's we're doing a darn good job of it. Really good job. Really good job of neglecting areas and, and turning our back on them and just interrupting, again, that natural process that should be happening. I, it's, it's tough to see because you you know you've, you've read into it, you've studied it, you know what it could be, what it should be, and how productive. Again, we went over those numbers last week of how productive whether each habitat is, but if it's it's better as if you manage it. And, as, and if you let things just be neglected, ah, you just got to shake your head and think, man, just I'd love that acreage just to get in there and just crank a chainsaw and just let it rip and let it eat. That kind of go, goes with that happens. joke that I've shared a lot of the guy that bought the farm that was thick and nasty and he and he cleaned it all up and uh and it was a big beautiful ranch and guy showed up and said man look at this farm that look what god has done here and he said yeah we should have seen what it looked like before before i got here and it kind of goes with that whole as in in my beliefs that we were put on this earth as a caretaker to take care of this and because of the curse we deal with things that overtake and invade and because we don't manage it as I feel like we should be doing bad things happen and cedars come on and bush honeysuckle comes on all kinds of things come on and I just think you know we we stopped or went by one place that was filled with cedar trees I don't know what percentage of the tree or field was trees but they were about three foot tall everywhere mm-hmm. and all it would take was one good fire and knock that all the way back. But instead, we're going to get to drive by it many more times as we travel the country, I'm sure, and look at it slowly get taken over, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. And it, and that's what's scary. Are, the density is in place for it to be taken over as they as those basic canopies and those branches spread. And it's just a matter of a few years for you're not looking across the field. You're just looking into the first couple rows of of cedars but let's let's dive into cedars themselves and again we're going to focus primarily because the range of this plant tree is so great so many people have a very um, in-depth knowledge of them they know they can recognize them they can like they they've hunted around them most likely and I understand um, there's a couple different types sure eastern red cedar is what we're talking about today and it's funny because it's not even a cedar. Yes. That's it's a where juniper. Uh, the eastern red cedar, as everybody knows, and I we've had we've posted a few questions on our Facebook page about cedars, and some guys say, well, deer love cedars up here. Well, there's probably a big difference. If deer are eating a re- eastern red cedar, oh my, there's nothing to eat anywhere around you. But there's also the white cedar. There but ain't, we'll there get ain't into even that. Table scraps up there. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, just different different types of of plants, and they they look similar, so they can easily be mistaken. But an eastern red cedar is is actually a juniper, and again, here's some, a little bit of, I guess history of, of things that a cedar is actually used for. Way back when, Indians used the limbs to make. Um, a treatment for tuberculosis out of the cedar limbs. I thought that was pretty cool. And then they boil the leaves to make a cough remedy. Would you Would you take a cough remedy off the 
some cedar limbs. If cedar a native leaves. gave it to me, I sure <laughs> would. Yeah. If, yeah, if, if that's all you had, right? Well, if they said that, yeah, for sure I would. Um, and I'll, I'll go in a little bit of history that I read up on on the cedar. Um, and this goes on fire scars on, on the rings of, of trees, basically looking back pre-settlement, um, mid to late 1700s to mid to late 1800s. And they were looking at the fire scars inside trees once they were cut. And basically here in the Missouri kind of glade, which is now cedar glade habitat, but um, there was a fire, a major fire, Every two to four years, I think it was like 3.2 was kind of right in there. A couple the average, the average. So a, a, a great fire, and we're and, talking and hundreds they knew of miles that because of the rings. They could yes. tell the they could tell that there's fire during that year based on the rings. Mm-hmm. And so, like, that's kind of think now. Think about how much fires went through your farm. <laughs> Not much, probably, because fire is definitely something that's lacking across the atm- or across the uh, landscape. I about said atmosphere. Um, <laughs> there's, but, if there's fires in the atmosphere, we are in trouble. <laughs> we are. Run! And so, anyway, um, fire every two to four years, and and basically, so because of that, as we know how flammable cedar trees are, um, they were really the the eastern red cedar was really only designated to Cliffs and rock outcropping areas where fire couldn't reach them. Fire doesn't go across rocks, so that's the only place in which a cedar, which cannot sustain fire, that's the only place they would grow. Yeah, and now, once we pulled the plug on fire, thanks, Smokey, um, we look and now they're cedar trees it gave them the the ability to spread out of those areas into areas that were usually native grasses and forbs and oak savannas and all this stuff. Now there's cedar creeping through those areas. Mm-hmm. And it you know when we look at the growth rate of a cedar, red cedar, it's twelve to twenty four inches a year. That's a foot to two foot a year. So again, in in a time span, that's height, of, not of, girth. Yeah. In a time span, you can quickly, a couple of years, if you turn your back on something, have a real big issue. A 10-foot tall cedar in a matter of five years. Mm-hmm. If, you know, optimal growing conditions there. And that's a lot. Now you're busting out the chainsaw just to get back what an opening you had, you know. That's why we have to actively manage and actively work the land to manipulate it, to keep it in a state that is the most productive. That's the ha- that's the whole thing of habitat management. For sure. Yeah. Give me some more facts. So oh, I'm going to get into some facts and in, in more of the the I guess invasion type of facts, but really want to talk about just the lack of productivity when it comes to a cedar thicket right now. Ugh. And then we'll get into how it's invading one state in particular, really really bad. They've done a lot of studies regarding this going across their landscape. But when it comes to a hunting situation, let's talk about hunting and and cedar thickets. Oh, gosh. Here goes the age-old debate. We're diving in. um, How many times have you heard the phrase, those deer are living in that cedar thicket? Think to yourself, I guarantee it's a lot because it is for me. You may have said it. 
Yeah, and, well, and I, I like those cedars. That's where the deer are living. Well, when we think of the requirements for a deer, food, cover, water, security. So we, let's just say cover. Let's look at cover. Um, what is your definition of good cover? For me, I want something that's providing safety, but then going right there with cover is security. You've got to have both. In a, in a sanctuary setting, if you don't have both, you don't have most likely the the dominant bedding area in the, in the you know within that neighborhood. Yeah, because they quick, will find quick story. You could have Go the ahead. best bedding in the in the county. But if the neighbor's dog runs through it or a pack of dogs runs through it every single day and he's running through it or walking through it with those dogs, it doesn't have security, so they're not going to be there. That's what we're talking about. But if you have cover, with my air quotes up, you have an area that is providing security as in nobody goes there, I think of a swamp. Another, yeah. think of all these marshy, swampy areas, and you're like, oh, there are deer down there in the swamp. Well, it's not preferred either, but it has security, and therefore and the deer forage are going but. there to, to stay because they're secure there. Same thing with the cedar thicket. It's not necessarily ideal, but since there is security, and the reason there is security is it's so thick, as thick as the hair on a dog's back, you and I don't want to walk through it. Therefore, the deer associate that area with not having human activity or predator activity. No intrusion. Then, yeah, sure. If, if you're walking to your stand, you're not going to walk through the thickest portion of the property that's hard to get to. You're going to take the field edge across the field or through an open hardwood section, and you're going to continue to avoid that area. And when we say thick, we mean thick as for a human to walk through. When you get into a a true cedar thicket, and again, this is not just dotted cedars throughout a you know an open field or something. When you get into a true cedar thicket that they're just stacked and stacked and stacked on top of one another, and then you get down to a deer's level, is there cover down there? No, no, there's not. It's but, cedar needles and dirt and and dirt, right? But there's the factor of security still associated with that area because you do not go into it. Then I think when you go, when you look at the Midwest, the, the other common thing is, well, my deer have nowhere else to go, so it's a, it's a good place. That's just the association that, they, that there's the cedars. You know, you have, you have two options in, in some areas of the, of the country. You have wide open crop fields and ground that is marginal or a slope that's not maintained, that doesn't have fire, so cedars grow there. But there's nowhere else for a deer to bed, so the association is oh, oh, deer love cedars because they're always in there. But That's there's no other there's no other solution. I was there's thinking no of way. all the all the times I've watched outdoor television, um, in let's just say southern Iowa because that's where it seems like everybody's at mm-hmm. filming, and and you see deer coming out of cedar thickets. Well, it's either a an area that's not farmed, like you said, yeah. or it, or it's a crop field, and the areas that aren't farmed. Due to lack of fire and lack of management, are now taken over by cedars. So, regardless of what's there, or or what could be there, it's right now it's a cedar tree, and that's the only option to get away from 
predators. It's basically out of necessity because nowhere else is safe or I have nowhere else to go for deer to be choosing on a daily basis a cedar thicket to bed down in. Because that's not, again, their preference. They want the cover from ground level to four foot. But when they don't have that, they're going to choose the most secure place. Or if they don't have another option, they're going to choose their only place and go there. And that's pretty much what we're dealing with in, in crop country where there are cedar thickets. Is that's the only place. And again, I you know, this goes back to where talked about those observations that you might have. And if you if you're either from that area or you've hunted that area or you're in an area that doesn't have... Um, very, very much secure places and a cedar thicket's the only place, you're going to begin to think or you may begin to think that, man, cedars are great places for deer to bed in. When you think about their natural tendencies and their preferences, it's not, but by default, they're in there. And is that is that a lack of habitat management? Possibly. Or is that a lack of poor hunting choices? Because... You're now securing, you're now basically making that area the safest place on your farm and, and basically not improving hardwoods, not opening up timber or the canopy to produce the ground cover that they actually will desire. And, you know, a lot of places here in the Midwest, historically speaking, where we have a lot of cedars, there's a good chance that it's probably some sort of cedar glade. Um, go into those areas um, and look and see if you see limestone rock outcroppings uh, or any type of rock outcropping. Um, and you start looking, and if you see those, that's a pretty good indicator that we're looking with at a at a glade, a sh- an area of shallow soil that was once dominated by diverse native grasses and forbs, little blue, big blue stem, uh, ending grass. All kinds, of, all kinds Switch of other, in there yeah, sometimes. echinacea plant, all kinds of wildflowers, beautiful little areas, but, um, and a lot of oak trees can't grow on them very well. Um, there's a few species, Some but adapted. cedar trees yeah. have taken a strong hold because they can live there, um, probably because they evolved as, as living on the side of a cliff and yeah. And very figured out how to grow on rock. And mm. now they're like, ooh, this is nice soil, even though it's shallow. <laughs> yeah. And so, therefore, they have taken over our glades, er, glady areas. And so if you, let's just say Google um, native glades, um, you'll see kind of what we're talking about, the areas. And then you go into oak savannas, and that's pretty much a lot of the west, or midwest, I mean. Woo! And so, yeah, well, that's and, what we're dealing with. And then with. there's the other option of, okay, this this portion of, oh gosh, <clears throat> was once farmland or pasture ground and now it's been abandoned and uh. left alone. And then you see a very densely packed, very uniform stand of cedars. Yeah, because they finally had decent soil where mm-hmm. they could outcompete everything. Yeah. Um, the and native never... grasses and forbs um, may be able to compete for the first couple of years, but they're only going to grow to four foot and then start back over while a cedar tree just keeps continues on going and continues and continues and then it ultimately shades out those native grasses and forbs and then then that's where we start getting into trouble. And again, I think it's important when we look and talk about a cedar thicket, a true cedar thicket where they're growing almost on top of one another just stacked in there. The way that they grow is they continue to put on growth up top. 
and begin to basically abandon resources going to the lower limbs. And not only that, but those lower limbs aren't even able to reach sunlight. So no. they're lacking they're, the sunlight to photosynthesize, yeah. and they end up dying. So if, if the lower limbs aren't getting enough light to even sustain life, basically, is there any sunlight getting to the ground? <laughs> not a chance. Not if sure. half the cedar is dying, there's not a chance for anything underneath that. Right. So it is absent of sunlight, absent of solar radiation, which helps to warm deer up. What are they going to do? But that's the, that's the thing that, that, that is really unfortunate is some places of the country, there's no other option for them. That's how far we've come down the barrel. We're at the <laughs> you, bottom. You sounded so... It is depressing. depressing right there. It is depressing. <laughs> I, I I mean so far uh, down the barrel. <laughs> I, I'm 30 and I'm like, I don't want to know what it's going to look like in another 30 years. And that was honestly a big part of creation of Land and Legacy mm-hmm. was the fact that I don't want to see this continue. And I'll sure I'm. It may not in 40 years. I may look back and say, well, we didn't do any good, but I'll sure <laughs> go down a swinging. Oh yeah. So oh, yeah. that's where we're at here, people. Is is the fact that. It's not because we have something in a bag that we want to sell you and say, buy this and kill your cedar trees. It's the fact that our wildlife are struggling with what we have currently going on through most of the country, but yet we're not doing anything to correct it, and we're just going to continue sinking and sinking. We're on a ship that's got a lot of water coming in, and we're not doing anything to fix it. Yeah. And we're losing species like the northern bobwhite quail. The populations are plummeting. And so many other songbirds and, and other things. But we're not doing anything other than saying, well, them deer like bedding them cedar trees. And I think I'm going to keep them. But yet, uh, it's so frustrating. So is that a little more chipper for you? There we go. But And, and here's the flip side of this. We're not advocating that you get rid of every cedar. We're going to dive into that in a little bit of, okay, if cedars are, are, are part of an ecosystem, where's their place? And and I realize also that, okay, if it does snow in your area, there's aspects of cedar, cedar trees and evergreens, different species of evergreens that provide great escape from deep snows and snow. It protects the under underneath those areas. So, I'm, we're not saying get rid of every single cedar you've ever seen, destroy them, no. be gone. It, it's a native. I understand that it is and a native species to North America, so we wouldn't advocate killing any of them. Think, of the, think of the Killing cedar. any of the natives, not just killing any <laughs> of the cedars. We are huge advocates of killing a lot of the cedars because they have a place, but it's certainly not across the landscape it's not dominant it's, it's not to be dominated no throughout the, throughout the landscape they were but only in pockets pre-settlement you think of you now think they're of the cedar waxwing that's a bird that really depends on that cedar tree for life but that's one of the only ones that does that is just you know they they, they make great nesting habitat for birds you know it protects from the wind and so on and so forth but again they don't need to be at the at the invasive level no. Throughout the landscape. They need to be present, however, managed. There's and many, I- many problems with this with the eastern red cedar. Um, there are a few benefits, um, but there's a, a lot more problems. And that one of the biggest is the fact that they're so invasive that they out comp- and and I guess strong willed, if you will, um, 
they can outcompete a lot of the native habitat and the native species. So that's a huge problem. I think of think about it like this. How many times have you seen a fence row or you see a big huge tree out in the middle of a yeah, pasture? Like a post oak tree or white oak tree. And there's tons of little cedars underneath it or in that fence line. You're like, wonder why they're growing so well over there. Or, or think about think about a power line too. Yeah, even a power line. Right underneath what, the line. I think of that, and you're like, I wonder why there's so many cedars. Here's why. They make a little blueberry. You've seen it. The eastern red cedar, little blueberry. Bird eats that berry, flies over, poops that berry out. Boom, yep. starts to grow. That's how it's spreading. And and now we have all these cedar trees that have all these berries, and then we have all these birds that eat these berries, and now they just spread everywhere. But since one of the biggest ways to control eastern red cedar and the way it was controlled historically is now basically removed, for the most part, from our landscape, that's why it's invading everywhere. Exactly. Back then, it still had the same growing tendencies, but a different management to keep it at bay, if you will. The natives knew how how to control it. Let's burn it down. Right. And and again, you know that was a food resource for for birds. You know, again, not saying get rid of it completely. However, it just needs to be managed. And and for a hunting aspect of things, it should not be the most preferred area on your farm. Ugh. And it shouldn't be. So when we it say dominate a farm, we don't either. like cedars. Is that's the the thickets, the monoculture areas where there's not really anything growing underneath it. We understand that diversity, my gosh, how many times every podcast you hear us talk about diversity. And so eastern red cedar occasionally mixed in. Sure, that's fine. Knowing that in a preferred management style, there's going to be a fire through there in three years, and it's probably going to take care of that cedar tree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if we have a – I read somewhere, Matt, that said that they have a cedar tree they found that was 450 years old. Wow. That that's crazy to me um, to think how many other cedar trees grew because of that one. <laughs> but you think about that; it, it just keep, it's like the Energizer Bunny it just keeps growing and growing and growing and growing and reproducing and reproducing. And with the lack of fire, that no wonder it it has the ability to take over the landscape. Right. And again, we're really focusing on the cedar thickets, not just dotted throughout the landscape. Here and there, you know, you see a couple. Whatever, not a big deal. And one of the thickets. One of the biggest problems with that dotted, when we say that, we say that with extreme caution of saying, yeah, sure, we're we're cool with the dotted landscape of cedars. Now, when we say cedars, we're talking about younger cedars, less than 10 years, preferably less than five years. So they're still kind of short and bushy and there's limbs and greenery all the way to the ground. That's what we prefer. The problem is, if left unmanaged, it can turn into a monoculture really quickly. Exactly. And that's that's where we start having a problem. That's like the guy's over there chirping in the corner, and you're cool with it because whatever. But when he says something about your mama or your girlfriend, then you're not cool with it. And that's when we're not cool with it is when the cedars start to get to the— basically, they're getting to a point where there's nothing has the ability to grow underneath it. And it's it's starting to choke out the the other natives. And and when they're at that stage where they have limbs all the way below and they're kind of they're still bushy and they're short, that means other 
vegetation can grow in and around them. And then when we send a fire through there, that vegetation around that bushy, short cedar tree that has limbs close to the ground will actually help ignite that cedar and keep it managed. Whereas if we, if we say, try and, if we try to put a fire through a cedar thicket <laughs> or, or an area that's got, that's very choked out because those limbs are dead, they're not low enough to ignite a fire and there's nothing on the ground for a fire to carry through. The only way to carry a fire through a cedar thicket is one big burn. And, and that's to where crown it's out the top. That's that's scary. That's a that's a really fun fire for a pyro like me. But it throws some embers. Oh man, I I would really try to prefer to not do that. Uh, and just so we're t- since we're talking about eastern red cedar, if you're trying to mechanically kill them with a chainsaw or any type of saw, all you got to do no herbicide required, cut it off below the bottom limb, and done. it's done. Cut it all the way through, and you're it's all good. And there. then take a step back. Because then you can see this big, massive ring in where that there was nothing growing in and around that cedar because there was no sunlight getting there. Now, if you take that little 10-foot circle, let's just say, now, next year, you're providing whatever that, that surface area is, that much more hab- habitat, forage, whatever it may be, in that area. You clean out a whole entire thicket, now you're getting somewhere when we talk about the productivity of, of a property. Those numbers that we shared last week, maybe it's old field management. You're cleaning out um, a cedar thicket and you want to establish old field back in there. Now you're going from very low productivity to 3,000 pounds an acre when you clear uh, an acre of cedars where, again— and, and you have beneficial forage come back. Yeah, exactly. And For again, me, I'll use the story we have—and and just so you know, this is a fight that we— that we have to fight every single year of cutting cedars. And, and we actually were, we neglected a few areas in the past due to lack of time. And just basically I wasn't around as much and, and cedars took a, took a strong hold of the area. What we did was we went in and we cut those cedars in the January, February. And then all of a sudden the next growing season, wouldn't you know it? Ragweed grows up. Boom. Out of nowhere. Just, like like somebody just threw the seed, mm-hmm. grows up. Now we have bedding because we still have a cedar top, great place for a deer to bed up next oh, to very it. Great. very it's good. It's great cover for quail and rabbits and other species. And then we have a great food source like ragweed growing. Mm-hmm. So what we did, what we did, and oh, I guess what we had before was a cedar thicket. And it's not like you went in there or anything. So, you know, by default, again, there were some deer that would have stayed in there, would have spent time there during the daylight hours. However, now the management practice was go in, cut, and have beneficial forage in those areas and cover at the desired height and still treat it as a sanctuary. So now that area, that same acreage, now is is still providing bedding cover and food and security. So it's a double-edged sword when you begin to think about clearing cedars I'm still going to maintain this as a sanctuary and not go in there. It's going to have that security feature, but I'm also going to have food. I'm, in I'm there going to as try well. and explain that too because you went long story. I'll try and keep it short here. Short. Before, when it was just cedar, it was all we had was standing cedar. There was no forage, there was no sunlight reaching the forest floor where a deer is at. 
We went in, cut the cedar. Now we have sunlight reaching the forest floor where a deer would be bedding. It still has the benefit of bedding next to the cedar. And then we have beneficial forage coming up. So now we have all three things that would make it great. Security, food, and cover. Mine, and before it was just, you might say, security. There wasn't right. really cover, even though there was a tree there. It wasn't very beneficial cover. It wasn't That's desired. the difference. It was not at the desired height. So when we talk about areas of going, okay, well, if you don't like cedars, what can I do to make it exactly. better? Cut them and let nature run its course and let something grow back. And if that is a native, like let's just say it's ragweed, or let's just say it's something that's not a, a native and it's some sort of invasive, spray it, burn it. Continue to and just manage. Keep managing it. Now you're going to have, you're going to continue to stay out of there. That's the big part. But then you're going to have forage, and hopefully there's enough forage in there, and there probably will be if it's a big area, to where we're going to take some of the pressure off our food plots or off our crops. But then as that matures or matures, and that f- what was food is now cover, now we have bedding through the fall and winter. And then hopefully they're using your food sources. In in addition to a hunting strategy, when you look at a cedar thicket, you can't see in there. You can't hunt it. You can't overlook this area. So when you go in and remove these cedars, cut them, fell them, don't drag them off, don't pile them up, just lay them over as they fall. Let it just dry out. Send a fire through there once fire breaks are in place, so on and so forth. But the next year, you've got these dotted cedar skeletons, and hopefully it's a ragweed or maybe some native grasses have already started coming back in. Or maybe it's kind of a a half-open cedar thicket with dotted openings through there. And then you have a great explosion of those native grasses. Whatever it may be, now you've got, let's just say you had an acre prior to this. Now you have an acre the next year with laid over tops, the right amount of cover and forage, but you can see the whole thing. That's a great place to rifle hunt. Mm-hmm. Those cedar skeletons are great places for does who are, who are trying to seek refuge from bucks to tuck in up, up against them and hide for a while. And it's a great place for bucks to be chasing does. Now you've got a much better place to be able to hunt. You can still treat it as a sanctuary, as in my wind doesn't blow in there, but I'm a- actually able to now see in there and see what's happening. You know, maybe you're experiencing a really crummy rut. Well, that's the only place for a doe that she knows, okay, I'm not going to get shot in here prior to cutting. So I'm going to run around in here and get chased all the time. Maybe get popped out on the field edge and zip back in there. But then when you go and cut, they're still going to do that because it's still security, but you're actually able to witness and observe it all. That's a great advantage to it. Whether you like cedars or not, it's not that now cutting the cedars, you're going to remove deer from bedding there, you're actually going to enhance that bedding cover and enhance the hunting opportunities on a farm. And not just enhance it for the betterment of the deer, but also the other types of wildlife. Now we actually, by cutting and letting some other early secession grow up, now we have a an area for a turkey to go and nest or a quail to go and nest. It's kind of the age-old debate or Hopefully it's not much of a debate if you're talking to us, but um, why would you do something that's beneficial to one species when you can do something that's beneficial to a 
long list of species. If if you say, no, I want to leave that cedar thicket because the deer like that, but it's only really benefiting a few other species, and it's not really that beneficial to the deer, why are we even debating it still? Wouldn't we want to improve it for the entire ecosystem? I would, and that's that's a that's another debate. Calm me down. <laughs> Calm me down. And again, we're talking cedar thickets, not those ones that you might have a couple dotted throughout a fence row, so on and so forth. But when you continue to manage and use prescribed fire throughout, you know, the life of a property, as you manage it, as you caretake it, you're managing the cedars that are resprouting or that get carried, um, the seeds get carried off by birds, so on and so forth. Let's let's throw a couple numbers. We'll talk about how quickly they can invade and take over a certain area. And this research came out of Oklahoma um, by the NRCS. In 1950, they estimated 1.5 million acres in Oklahoma to their degree of infestation were taken over by cedars. 1.5 million acres in 1950. 1985, 3.5 million acres. That's 2 million more acres invaded by cedars, overtaken. And again, this was a very grassland-dominated ecosystem, especially during this time. And now we're talking about cedars encroaching in and becoming invading that and inhibiting that diverse landscape. So 1985, 3.5 million acres controlled by cedars. Now they're estimating it to be over 6 million acres just in Oklahoma, in the state of Oklahoma. And we think back I a read where years. it said 20, they believe that 27% of Oklahoma is, is eastern red cedar oh, monocultures. Oh, gosh. I seriously almost just threw up. Isn't that, I did. Isn't that sickening? Wow. Oh, man, that's bad. Well, And, and, and you know what's is, sad is that started out with your scattered little cedars. <laughs> Yeah, but the lack of fire didn't help control those either. But, and if you think about it, we're always talking about a, a fire on a three to five year rotation. We can manage with fire cedars within that, that three three year period. They can easily control those cedars. So if you have a couple dot out, don't freak out. Let that fire just take care of it. But I, I, I just, I, I'm thinking back six million acres invaded by cedars in the state of Oklahoma. And um, this is really unfortunate for for the state of Oklahoma. But just a couple years ago, they had devastating fires because that area, area, I think it was north central, kind of northwestern Oklahoma got really hit there with those fires. But they had not been managing with prescribed fires or many ranches had not and fire ripped through that area, damaged thousands and thousands of acres. How many total the, acres did you say was six million? Yeah, Yellowstone Yellowstone National Park is only two point two million acres. To give you an idea, woo, that's a lot. Yeah. So that fire, and guess this: there's a difference between using prescribed fire and the fire that went through Oklahoma. This was a destructive fire because of the lack of prescribed fire in those areas that were managing the fuel loads. So these fires were the fires that are crowning out cedars and and basically the fire hops 20 foot high from cedar to cedar and it's carried that way. If memory serves me correctly, that fire was about a million acres. 
piles. I mean, it affected a bunch of people. Killed cows. It was catastrophic. And it was. And, and, but a, the other side of that is it took care of a lot of cedars. <laughs> yes, it did. Um, but that's the fact of that's been unmanaged. Uh and and, a, and you know some there's some ranches out there who who definitely stick to a strict um, prescribed fire management plan. However, some don't, and those cedars began to take over. Well, excuse me, did take over, and because the fuel load was not managed, they have catastrophic fires or had a catastrophic fire, mm-hmm. and that the there was loss of life. There was millions and millions of dollars in you know, agricultural losses, um, houses, barns, whatever, so forth. But that's because of the, the cedars, the encroaching of cedars and lack of fire to manage them that, mm-hmm. that we have adopted. As There's society, a, not we. As, yeah, well, there we go. As we as humans. You got anything we, else? I'm looking at your I'm, notes and looking at the time, and I'm like, this is funny. <laughs> Matt's got a complete sheet of notes. There's just so much. And then know? I've got white cedar, pine, and native grasses written on my sheet. Oh, here, here we got, in 2013, same folks, NRCS predicted in, invasion of basically 762 acres of cedars a day. Is uh, So That's, acres lost to cedar trees. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. It got to their level of infestation, 762 acres a day. Yeah. That's over 300,000 per year. That's incredible. That's a that's an alarming rate. Seven, I just seven hundred sixty two acres a day. And that's, think, think of that. And and you property. understand why when you drive through Oklahoma, you kind of would get understand uh, start understanding why it's so fierce out there is because it's a lot of like these little native grasslands, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a lot of prairie rangeland as they call it. But throughout the rest of the country, we have a lot of busted up crop fields and and residential areas. Uh, basically pastures that get mowed for hay and those areas are just grazed and that's why it's taken over so much out there but um it's certainly taken over our our uh, landscape but probably not in such a open visual way ours is more creeping and people aren't paying attention Mm -hmm. because it's already kind of forest forested areas correct it's changing it out there so much in their eyes because they're going from grassland to cedar tree thickets Correct. We're already thickets. The views are much more open. They're losing their views where we're, we've been more of a timber. We're just dominated. used to timber, and it's like, oh, there's cedar in there now. Yeah. Oh, never mind the fact that it's taken over the complete understory. <laughs> so, right. Well, here's another topic that we haven't talked about yet with regards to cedars, and that's the water absorption rate. And it's, it's extremely alarming when we look at um, basically how much rain fall in these areas they receive in a year but how little actually gets to the ground and we don't when we have rainfall that doesn't get to the ground everything else suffers you have lower water tables so on and so forth so in a three-year study and this was with an ash juniper study so a similar species to eastern red cedar uh, but in a three-year study 45 percent of the rainfall never even reached the soil. And if we look and we think about how much that affects, again, that water table. And if you, you know, you talk to your grandpa or whatever, and you think, how in the world did he fish that creek 
when he was growing up, I mean, fish to pulled out fish that he'd eat and consume. And now I don't even have water running in that creek. This may be more reason as to why throughout. And this is, this isn't just going to, you know, con- play into a, a factor of just your, your back 40. This is across the entire United States. It, well, it's affecting that the, the encroachment of cedars kind of, we went from the very best at water infiltration with the diverse with native, native grassland or diverse native species of grasses and forbs to the very worst for infiltration of one of extreme cedars. to the other. Yeah, twelve foot root systems that took in the water, took That's it what all the native way down, grasses. right? Took it all the way down to the water table, filled up aquifers, kept them full, and now that water, forty five percent in a cedar thicket, or or that that would typically fall on the ground wherever that cedar canopy is. 45% never even reaches the soil. It's mm-hmm. absorbed off or the, the the branches and leaves of a cedar take it in. And what does Ugh. make it through doesn't have anything growing underneath it mm-hmm. a lot of times, and so it's then running off. Right, because then, it, yeah, exactly, it's hitting soil. Dirt. And then you Not have soil, more sedimentation. It's, soil is living. <laughs> it's <laughs> it basically dirt. But it, again, it's carrying off more sediment. And... It's just it's just a constant um, battle, if you will, with when it comes to cedar and, and water and and rainfall. You just you're you're fighting a losing battle when you have cedar thickets. So when and, we talk, and, we've been talking so much about cedars and the benefits or the negatives with with deer and deer hunting, but this is an environmental issue. It this really is, is a this goes beyond a, a flooding issue this is a fire issue this is way bigger than than a 200 inch deer that's living in a cedar thicket this is way bigger than a and a couple of deer that you want to say because this is this is basically environmental protection or or conservation of our natural resource is what what is happening um but those numbers i i don't i think should um maybe alarm a little bit bring awareness to what is happening. And again, you might have a one acre cedar thick on your place, but that one acre makes a difference. Think about it. If that one acre had a hundred percent of the rainfall that were to fall in that area, you could actually start growing things in that one acre area besides just a cedar monoculture. Yeah. And you could take that one acre and, and since it has security and deer bedding in it, now you could cut it and make it still have security have better cover, but also have forage. Now, I, I kind of want to go back into the realm of deer hunting and thermal cover and how in some areas, these evergreens are very beneficial for deer. And in other areas, thermal cover in comparison to native grass stands. Mm-hmm. And what the difference is, and kind of clear up that fact and and that misconception, that common misconception that I think a lot of hunters have when it comes to the thermal cover and how that actually looks in a landscape and how deer utilize it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because I I think, you know, I think that's probably the biggest debate when we start talking cedars. That's like the word that everybody pulls out. Well, it's good thermal cover. And and for me, the next question is what what are you considering? What's your definition of thermal cover? 
Well, and and then I think the next question is immediately, what's the density in which you're looking at this cedar thicket? Because I will challenge everyone out there to go walk across an open field. And we're going to do this. I thought about this. We're going to take a thermometer, and we're going to go into native grasses on a south slope when it's the coldest day we have. And we're going to say, what's the temperature? And then we're going to go into a cedar thicket and say, what's the temp now? I know what the result will be. Oh, yeah. We and did it just the other day, last Saturday, consulting. Yeah, yeah, we sure did. We, we purposely stopped in an opening. And it was a cold day. It was a cool day, yeah. Purposely stopped in an opening. And Adam, Adam laid down in the grass and encouraged the, <laughs> the client and his kids to do the same. And they laid down there for, what, like three minutes maybe? Yeah. As we're just said, talking, just chilling. Take well, a, we and, were walking a lot. We just and, we, took a and we said, and I, I basically said, what do you notice? And it was like, whoo, there's not much of a breeze here. Mm-hmm. And there's not much, uh, th- there's not this coolness that had happened 10 minutes prior when we sat down in the dense cedar thicket. Right. And it was like, I feel the sun. They were like, I just feel the sun. It feels nice. That's and solar radiation. I'm like, yeah. Now what do you think the deer are going to prefer? You know, in a dense, again, this is a dense cedar thicket because there's nothing growing underneath that sunlight doesn't get there. That's completely absent of any of the solar radiation, any of that energy that a deer could use to warm themselves up with. So when it comes to thermal cover, a cedar thicket has little in comparison to, let's say, cutting all those cedar as they lay, opening it up, but still having those skeletons and grasses to for them to lay in. Now, and, now and, we're getting somewhere. And and this is where we want to explain when we're talking about grass bedding areas. When you're thinking grass, you're probably thinking CRP fields is what we're what we're advocating is the fact that there's 90% native grasses and it's big blue and Indian grass which fall over a lot in the winter anyway. No, we're advocating diversity and diverse grasslands as far as these basically we have tons and tons of species we even have forbs we have shrubby stuff we have oak saplings we have have plums plum thickets we have sumac groves blackberry patches blackberry patches and then we have little blue stem i don't know why every we talked about this we were reading a bunch of different stuff hearing people talk about um, diverse grass and and the two that, well, the one that always comes to mind, and everybody talks about it, is switchgrass and how it can stand up through the winter. Yep, and it does. It stands up through the winter. Yeah, and but big blue does not do a very good job no, of that. Indian grass does not do a very good job of that. Gamma eastern gamma grass does not. But the one that everybody forgets is little blue stem. It's not nearly as tall, but it stands really well. But what they all need is one another. To support each other. Yeah. Lean the same, on me. same thing for... Uh, they wrote a song about it. Um, Goldenrod and all yeah. these other oh, yeah. really tall forbs and, and other species that are growing out there. We don't want a monoculture of grass. And and those cedar skeletons are perfect. What I like to refer to them as like a utilization cage out there. As everything grows up in them, it helps support all that. And deer tucks up against that. But they still have that radiation, that solar radiation warming them up. And I think the other thing that people often forget about is the grasses and their ability to shear the wind. If you have a dense stand of grasses and you actually tuck in below that top level of the grass, let's just say it's four foot tall, and you get in underneath of that, 
you know, you see those fields dancing in the wind. Mm-hmm. That's just the wind going over the top of them. But if you're in them, you, you don't very feel rarely feel that wind. And but and so the debate is for the northern guys is saying, well, sometimes we get two foot of snow. That's going to lay that grass down. Okay, a preferred bedding area. If you're a white-tailed deer and you're wanting to bed to warm up, where would you bed? Obviously, it's where you can get sunlight. Mm-hmm. South slope or west facing slope. Those are one of the first areas that the sun's going to melt the snow off of. Yeah. And of course, if you get two foot of snow, the grasses, a straight monoculture grass is going to lay over. Mm-hmm. But if you have these shrubby species, you have the occasional cedar in in this little bedding area, you have pockets where there is, and especially if that's on one of these west or south facing slopes, you have pockets where there's no snow and it is ideal bedding. And now when we're talking, you know, upper peninsula, Michigan, you know, extreme harsh conditions of, of northern Wisconsin, Minnesota, Canada, Maine, evergreens are very, very important. I don't want, I don't want people to get the misconception that we're saying all of it's bad we want oak savannas everywhere. <laughs> no, no, no. We don't want grasses, grasslands everywhere. Because in those areas, that's not what it should be. However, in those areas, <clears throat> in evergreen, a white pine, a red pine, those species... Spruces. Yeah. Those species block the snow from getting all the way to the ground, or they limit the amount of snow that's going to the ground because of the structure where those branches are, are basically grow and displace... They block a lot of that snow, so they're very important in those areas. And that's why I love this is the difference. This is where Matt has his long list, and I have just a few. I have white cedar, and that was to talk about the difference between the two because deer actually eat white cedar in those areas. But what I really want to talk about is pines versus pine as your evergreen versus cedar tree as your evergreen. Pines actually, if you look in the south, you see pine savannas. Pines actually let sunlight get to the forest floor. Not, They're not nearly as bad at collecting all the sunlight and basically starving out the species underneath it. You can actually have grass growing up underneath these pine trees to where you have the best of both worlds. You've got growth from, for, from forest floor to four foot high, and then you have the thermal cover, if you will, a tree that's going to collect a lot more of the snow and keep it from being on the ground. Well, and throughout the day in the wintertime... <clears throat> those cedars or those pines in the grand scheme of things, they're going to hold more heat in. And if it blocks snow at the same time and you've got a thick, you know, you just had a, a snow, a snowfall. Yeah. A deer's going to bed under there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it absolutely will. And in those conditions, that's a great place for it to bed. Yeah. But not, I guess the majority of people, throughout the whitetails range don't have those conditions and if they do it's very temporary and so that's again why we're not advocating to get rid of every single cedar or every single evergreen it's no i absolutely would not ever say that so that's why in those areas that yeah I'll, i'll get snow okay that's that's where those cedars really come in handy when you have a couple of them throughout the property hey i can know that there's a big snowfall coming. Deer might be in close proximity to those few cedars. However, I might get one or two of those snows a year. They hang around for two days, three days, because it warms back up, and it's gone. 
So I don't need or necessarily want to manage for those the harshest, harshest conditions throughout the majority of my property. I want it there. I want it present so I know that the deer have what they need within the boundary of my property. But I want to I want to manage for the majority of what's going to happen out there. The majority of that is going to be, hey, it gets cool. It's 40 degrees. And I know my deer are going to be on the south or west-facing slope soaking in that sun in my old field management with my mixed grasses, my plums, my dogwoods. If you're in northern, everything. if you're, let's That's say, Great right. Lakes region where red pine and white pine are native, I would be planting some of those. If you and don't f- have them, right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I would be planting them scattered around. And that's actually what we're going to be doing on the on the home base in the coming years is planting short-leaf pines because they were native to the area. But due to over-logging and, and <laughs> over-competition, we've lost a lot of them. So we're going to be planting them. So we have these evergreens scattered through the... Through the landscape. Through the landscape, because they can actually handle fire a whole lot better than cedar, and we're going to be doing a lot of a lot of fire. Yeah, so. darn right. So again, you know, it's important that there is the distinction of and the importance of listen in your respective areas. There, these play a very vital role. However, we don't need red cedar th- thickets throughout the country. That's not normal. That's not natural unless you have those rock outcroppings, those places where fire couldn't have gotten. So in relation to an overall property, if you have cedar thickets, please consider whether whether that was a glade or whether that was a pasture field that just was unmanaged, cattle were removed, and it was overlooked for many, many years. Please consider cutting it. And letting nature take its course. What was last week's spot? Fired up. Fired up that chainsaw. You were a a, a 78 Chevy. Uh, (laughs) Well, I had to get us to the property. (laughs) Yeah, okay. That's what it was. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That was the farm truck, man. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I, I hope with all that being said that there's been enough information and enough education of what cedar thickets, again, I'm I'm, I'm trying to emphasize thickets because that doesn't play any positive role in my book for for managing a property for it to reach its potential. I don't I don't see that. Mm-mm. I'd much rather have every single one of those. I say that I'd much rather have a large majority of those cedars laying on the ground. And if it was an old pasture, I'd come back in and I'd spray the fescue out and I'd let that native seed bank express itself let the sun reach the soil and man let's see what happens and if i need to go back in and spray some invasives that come in so what big deal i'll do it and i'm gonna run fire through there too on a three to five year rotation but that monoculture of cedars rarely do we terrible 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 trade knuckle terrible (laughs) we Rarely, I'm trying to think of an instance before I make that statement, but I don't, I can't think of one, um, of trying to where a monoculture is the best solution. Maybe if we're fighting a bunch of of uh, invasives in a food plot, we plant something to where we can spray to kill that off. To but break even that cycle, yeah. but even then, it's, that's it's only one year, and then the rest of the time we're planting a a bunch of species in a food plot, so. I can't think of a time, to be honest with you. Um, other if, unless it's production. So let let let's real quick go back to farmland, 
or cropland, and and you're you're the guy who says, okay, a lot of my area is crop fields, little slivers of timber, not really even big enough for deer to bed in. Those are the travel corridors, and then they have these odd areas that have just grown up in cedar thickets. What what's the prescription there? What do they do? I would say cut, start cutting, um, and look at. You know, if you want to play it, Mr. Conservative, and you're not ready to say goodbye to all those cedars the first year, I would say cut half those cedars. See what happens. Stay out of it. You got to treat it. Don't you dare treat it differently. Just because you can see there doesn't mean you have the right to even walk over there and look at it. No. <laughs> during deer season. Don't do that. You have to treat it exactly the way it was, or you're not going to know the difference. But go in there and cut half of them. See what happens. See what grows back. And say... Hmm. You know, it seems like there was more deer around that side of the farm or around that this year than have been in the past. Maybe I'm going to go back and cut the rest of those cedars. And consider, you know, it might be October and you're getting warm temperatures and stuff like that. They might not be out there in the direct sun the whole, the whole time, but give it a full season and make that decision of, okay, yeah, I see. I see. When I had crops standing over here, a lot of the deer were in the, the corn until it got cut. But then when it got cut, it turned cold, and bam, that's right where they went was that place where I cut all those cedars. Maybe I should consider cutting more. And and then when you cut those other ones and you do get those snows, and you know exactly those dotted cedars throughout the rest of the, the farm, you know ex- I have a very, very good idea of where those deer could be going to, where they could be bedded out, where they could be seeking that refuge. Yep. So, again, it's not it's it's not a – I want every singer cedar wiped off the face of the earth. It's let's manage this. Understand just want ninety percent of them. <laughs> well, honestly, that's that's probably a realistic number. Probably as sad as it is, and as drastic as that sounds, that's probably a very realistic number. Yep. If we if we could knock, I just I just have to look and go. What is the potential without those? And the potential without a cedar tree monoculture is the fact that we can now provide more forage for our wildlife, better cover, and have more wildlife because of it. And and that, to me, that goes to so many podcasts. Okay, now we have better cover, so that means there's more field mice, there's more rats, there's more rabbits. So that goes back to the coyote, Are Coyotes Really the Problem podcast. If you haven't checked that one out, please do. And then we'll we talk about that one uh, some of the upcoming podcasts, more possibly having a few more quail, better cover for quail. Um, then we go to back to the podcast talking about how we can prepare for future turkey seasons. That'll go way back to probably maybe some 15 or less. I don't even know what podcast number to where we have better habitat for turkey nesting. Um, all this is better off with without cut cedar monocultures and that's the whole debate is is just because you see a few deer in the winter bed in a cedar tree monoculture doesn't mean you can't have it better and we've often used this during this analogy i guess during consultation trips as well you know again and sometimes it's hard to to um enlighten clients yeah, at some point, because they've observed deer in and out of those cedar thickets very routinely. So I know that's where they're at. That's where they're at. I don't want to touch them. I don't want to cut them. Why would I do that? I get that. But just let's 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 think for a second here. If you were homeless, Adam, 
This is a cutie may. You're going to have to cite the source on this because this was their analogy. Oh, was it? Yeah. Well, then go ahead because I don't want to. No, no, it was a cutie may analogy, and I forget who did it. It may have been Matt Ross, but it was talking about, it was in their magazine, talking about just because, was this the garbage? Just because you see a person eating out of the garbage doesn't mean it's natural, but it's what they have to do to survive. Same thing is true with, with cedar trees. If their only other option is bedding down in danger on a consistent basis, they're going to choose that option. Now, it's not ideal, but they're forced to do it. That's yeah. the argue, argument. And, and with all these other facts, I really hope you can sit back and say, huh, that, that cedar thicket, that monoculture of cedars I have in a couple of different places, uh, it's not doing me really any good. And if I treat it, that same area the way I, I am and, and it's a sanctuary I know that I can I can improve it so much by just having those cedar trees felled and maintained with fire or just letting that native seed bank work I, I hope that is enlightening and encouraging it, and, and if by the end of this podcast you're still with us and you're not ready to call Dan and get us kicked off the Sportsman's <laughs> Nation podcast but you want to debate this still with us shoot us an email Please and, do, yeah. And or comment on the post on social media. Um, please, for you other listeners, please like the page, follow along, and give us a review if you are from whatever you're listening now, whether that be iTunes, Stitcher, Google, whatever it is, please give us a review. Let us know your thoughts. Um, if when you leave t- it on iTunes, please leave it as in who uh, that it's the Land Legacy Podcast, since we have so many uh, other things going on that rss feed it's help it's helpful to us to know what podcast you're talking about yeah and when you're done with that go rev up that chainsaw and start cutting go, cedars go get to work and if they're good logs by golly haul them down to a sawmill and get some pretty yeah. lumber cut out of them there you go make a new mantle piece or something treat your treat your wife something get real something nice. beneficial out of that cedar at <laughs> yeah. least no so kidding. i don't know what time frame it is but i We're pretty a little well after an hour okay right. so anyway there you go Right. And, and let's just, in a nutshell, the pros to cedars is the fact they do provide a little bit of thermal, um, but that's in a, they're a lot more beneficial in a diverse stand where there is um, basically scattered, scattered cedar trees rather than dense monoculture of cedar trees. And preferably in a younger state, more of a bushy cedar to where there's greenery all the way down to the ground. Or a field cedar, people may have heard of. Yeah, the term field a cedar. Younger, a younger field cedar type. Bushier. Yeah. When they get closed, Shrubby as bush. we talked earlier, when they start getting dense and monoculture-ish, they start dying out on the bottom. Um, so we're liking those. We do like those scattered, bushy field cedars with the proper management, as in fire, because we know they're not going to get out of control. If you can't Correct. burn in your state, you're going to have to watch them for a few years and then go cut them down or bush hog them. But you do need to control them before they turn into a monoculture. We want to have the best of both worlds, food and cover. That's really the big benefits to cedar trees in that aspect. Now, the negatives, water, basically all the water they take in, all the the other natives that they they that they outcompete. They're very quick to grow, so they can get out of control um, in just a few years. And uh, to me, it's it's basically the sun is the basically energy source of everything we've got. It it helps plants grow, which deer eat, right? Yes. It helps warm up deer, 
maintain their their body temperature 104 degrees it helps maintain that so why do we just reject and block sunlight in cedar thickets why do we why do we allow that acreage throughout our farms and properties to be void of life you know what i think of when i think you of know? a cedar tree monoculture is a humongous circus tent that i just let it go out there yeah. to where they can get in and out of it, but there's really no life underneath there's it. Nothing. There's nothing. So that's really cedar trees in a nutshell. Now how to combat that is to allow them, if you're going to have them in your landscape to keep them spread out, but preferably we would like to reintroduce other evergreens that have probably been cut out of your area, such as if you're in the North red or white pine here in the Midwest, uh, shortleaf pines, down south is longleafs, um, all kinds of different pine trees you can reintroduce to your area to, to help provide some thermal cover for your deer for those winter months um, that aren't nearly as invasive as there's better options out there. Eastern red cedar. Now remember, diversity, diversity, it's diversity. King. So we'll catch you guys next time on that. We'll see ya. Thanks for listening to another episode of Land and Legacy's Hunting and Habitat Management Podcast. If you like what you hear, check us out at landandlegacy.tv. You can submit a viewer question right there, and we're answering on the podcast. Or find us on Facebook and Instagram. Feels pretty good knowing that from the beginning of time, God has called us to be a caretaker, a gamekeeper, a manager of the land. So with that being said, don't you think we should do it all for the love of the land and the glory to God? Yeah.